How might film reveal God? And do movies put people in a place of heightened receptivity to God's revelation? Hello, hi, and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle, and my guest on the show today is Richard Vance Goodwin from New Zealand. He's here to talk about his new book from InterVarsity Press America called Seeing is Believing, the Revelation of God Through Film, which has been published in the Studies in Theology and the Arts series. And Richard joins me now. Hi, Richard. Kia Brent. Kia ora, how are you? And uh, well done being published by InterVarsity in America. That's quite an achievement. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Now, how did your interest in film develop? Yeah, pretty organically. Probably like most people, I just like movies from a young age. And when I left school, I wasn't sure what to do. The thing to do in my family was to go to university. And I just thought studying um, film sounded interesting. So I, I did film studies at that undergraduate level. Um, but something significant happened. I, at this stage, I didn't know why I was studying what I was studying. It was just purely for interest. But uh, I started to find that the films that we were being assigned to watch in these classes were profound. And I was having profound experiences. And uh, these were movies that I had been, you know, I came from and come from a conservative um, evangelical background. And uh, while my own family wasn't particularly strict, these were the kinds of movies that, you know, good Christian boys didn't didn't watch or uh, weren't encouraged to watch. And um, But we had to watch them for class and I found them, um, yeah, they sometimes had R-rated content and yet I felt that they were, in a sense, spiritual, for want of a better word. And that caused a kind of tension for me, you know, what is it, why is it that in these very sort of quote-unquote worldly movies am I seemingly encountering something sacred. Now, I probably couldn't have expressed it in quite those terms at that stage, but it did propel me on a bit of a, a theological journey that in some ways I'm still on, but certainly through my my 20s was uh, exploring sort of the relationship between um, uh, the life of faith and living in the world and in the culture that we live in. Uh, so, yeah, I just eventually um, decided to pursue that a bit deeper. And so um, I did my master's degree at Fuller Theological Seminary. Uh, my wife's American, so we were looking at moving to the States anyway. Did my degree there, and part of the, the really, the main attraction there was that they specialize in, uh, among other things, um, theology and pop culture, um, and particularly film. They're based, the seminary is based in LA, so there's a kind of a sense of being close to the entertainment industry and so that's where I kind of refined that interest and then continued it on um, doing a doctorate at Otago and um, that that thesis was the basis for this book. Mm. Why have Christians been so reluctant to engage with the arts Richard? Cinema in particular or any yeah. of the arts really? Yeah so I think it's probably fair to say Protestants um, because you know if you go into uh, typical Catholic cathedral, you know, you're surrounded by the arts. And uh, once upon a time in the West, the church was the, you know, probably the leading patron of the arts. Um, but Protestantism reacted against that, uh, particularly against images. Um, I would say that word-based art, so, you know, any any kind of prose, literature, poetry, and, and perhaps particularly music, has been um, fostered to some degree in Protestantism, but um, there's been a suspicion of imagery 
And there's always been throughout church history a kind of push and pull between those who believe that imagery is problematic and those who think it's um, helpful in our faith. So, yeah, I think that that we're we're part of a you know if you're a Protestant and you're part of a tradition that has been wary of of imagery in general and the arts perhaps to some degree. But I think within evangelicalism, within the tribe that I've grown up in, there's probably even greater suspicion because there's a um, emphasis on um, sometimes spoken, sometimes unspoken, but an emphasis on being separate from the world. And when you're um, talking about, you know, movies where there's profanity and um, sex on display and, and all that sort of a thing, then it becomes a fairly easy, um, an easy no for somebody who, who defines their sort of faith and their posture by um, rejecting the sort of wider culture and the worldliness that they see out there. So that's the kind of, um, like I said, my own particular family, not particularly strict, but um, but that was the sort of the atmosphere I've grown up in. And But I think it's changing. I wouldn't say it's completely transformed, but certainly in the last 20 years, I've seen that change. God didn't create sex, of course, so we can't have any no. in cinema. No, well, that's a good point. Not part yeah, of, it's a good point because... You're right, because um, I think sometimes what has been lacking is a good theology of creation. And, and if, we, if we kind of have all our emphasis on a theology of sin, which is perhaps what more conservative expressions of Christianity have, have tend to do, um, but we don't have a, a, a robust theology of creation, then sometimes our engagement with culture becomes a little bit skewed. Uh, skewed towards separatism. And so I think for me, you know, I talked about my own theological journey, um, seeking to understand sort of how how to engage culture, how to live in this world, basically, as a, as a follower of Christ. And for me, a big part of that has been uh, discovering a theology of creation. I'm doing a podcast very shortly, or I've done a podcast, it will be uploaded shortly, with Robert Justra in the States on Abraham Kuyper. Uh, and there was a man who believed that all things were under the lordship of Christ, uh, including the Absolutely. arts, uh, Absolutely, cinema, yeah. music, everything. It's, it's, it's really an invigorating theology of the arts rather than a restrictive one. Now, how can we, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How can we theologically engage then with movies and with film? Yeah, so... In this book, I tap into a typology that's outlined by Robert Johnston. And Robert Johnston, for me, was probably theologically my uh, way in to this topic. Um, I was reading Johnston, or Rob, as he's known to me now, I know I'm with personally, but um, I was uh, found my way to his work just before I started um, formal study. And he has a typology where he talks about different ways that Christians um, typically have engaged with film. And at one end of the spectrum, you have rejection um, or avoidance is what he calls it. Uh, and then the next step along is caution. So it's a kind of, um, this is often characterized by kind of a worldview sort of approach to film, um, which is okay, but um, it tends to be quite cautious. So there might be some exposure to film, but it's usually kind of at an arm's length, quite weary. The next step along the sort of the middle position is dialogue. And that is um, seeking to do exactly what it says, you know, enter in a conversation with the film, um, understanding that the film might have something to contribute just as, uh, you know, Christian theology might. The next step along, um, we're now in the sort of other end of the spectrum, is appropriation. That is going uh, approaching film with a 
expectation that film might illuminate something completely new um, to you that perhaps your own faith you haven't encountered before. And then the, at the far end of the spectrum is divine encounter. And that is the expectation or the belief that um, God might meet you in that film viewing experience. So for me, I think every, uh, most postures are, um, or most approaches are appropriate some of the time. Um, there are times to be perhaps cautious. There are times to avoid certain kinds of film, maybe for certain kinds of people. I certainly wouldn't be dogmatic about that. But generally, my sort of comfortable or comfort zone in that spectrum is probably in that sort of appropriation space with an openness to divine encounter. So I come to film expecting um, that I might learn something new that from um, what I I learn from this film might illuminate something in my own faith. It might illuminate how I understand the scriptures. But I think a crucial thing here is we have to let down our guard a little bit. And that sometimes uh, goes against the grain of, of, again, what sometimes conservative Christians are taught to do, which is you're sort of going in with your guard up um, against the sort of influences of the world. Um, if we let our guard down and just listen, it's a, it's really similar to, you know, an interpersonal kind of approach of, of listening to the other. And so when we come to a film, if we're willing to um, just listen, hear what it says, um, or more importantly, or just as importantly, see what it depicts, uh, then I think that's a starting point. And then from there, there might be the uh, openness to learn something new. And as I argue in the book, perhaps even hear from God. Yes. How does your book connect uh, cinema? I was I've got down Hollywood in my script, but let's let's change that to cinema. How does your book connect cinema to the dreams of Jacob at Bethel in Genesis chapter twenty eight? I found this fascinating. Yeah. So one of the puzzles for me going into this project is that people regularly report those that report some sort of divine encounter or. Um, revelatory experience through film often point to the same movies. And I'm not the first person to say you can encounter God through film. Like I said, Rob Johnston covers this in his typology, and this is a, a big part of his own research and his body of work. So I'm certainly not the first to say that. But yeah, the puzzle for me is why certain films and not others. You know, we we read about in Numbers, um, God speaks through a donkey. So Karl Barth said God can speak through a dead dog. So revelation can come from anywhere, presumably any kind of um, any kind of movie you can think of. You know, God could speak through Rob Schneider's Juice Bigelow male gigolo. But but I don't hear many people writing um, about how they encountered God through that film. And yet other films, uh, the film that for me kind of kicked off this whole journey was Magnolia. Magnolia is one that people often point to as um, facilitating some kind of divine encounter. Um, the Tree of Life um, is another one. And there's a few of these films. And so for me, the question is, uh, I mean, uh, this is putting it very simplistically, but is it a matter that God just decided, hey, when somebody turns on Magnolia, I'm just going to show up, uh, you know, and I know that's putting it like simplistically, but I wanted to understand, okay, there must be something kind of objective. There must be something about these films that unlock um, perhaps a, a potential revelatory experience. Now, this is not to say that the movies themselves um, produce revelation. You know, revelation is something that only God can do. And yet, 
like I said, there's this pattern with certain kinds of films facilitating these experiences. So the reason why um, the the Bethel, um, Jacob at Bethel uh, story in Genesis is so um, is kind of a paradigm or an analogy for me is because what happens in this um, story in scripture is that Jacob is in the middle of nowhere. He's on the run. He's on the lamb. He's in a place where he's not expecting to encounter God. He's not in any kind of special temple or anything. And he lies down on the side of the road, falls asleep, has a dream where he encounters God. And um, and he wakes up from it and he says, how awesome is this place? Surely the Lord was in this place. And I was not aware of it. And it's that idea that God may be speaking. God may be present, but we can be unaware of it, in a sense, not tuned into it. And so what I argue is, and I call this the Bethel paradigm of revelation, is that certain films can attune us. If you imagine it almost like tuning in a radio broadcast, um, they help us tune in to the presence of God that is already there. And so certain kinds of films, particularly in the way they um, draw out or invite particular kinds of emotional responses, perhaps wonder or awe um, or, or sense of connectedness, these kind of responses might then put us in a place where we are tuning into the parts of reality, if you like, where God is already revealing God's self. Yes. Are some stylistic cinematic choices more spiritual than others? Yeah, that's what I'm arguing. And again, I'm not the first to argue this, but previous argument, the, the one that I'm thinking of that's most famous along this line is called Transcendental Style and Film by a guy called Paul Schrader. Not a, theolog- uh, not a theologian, um, but and actually quite a famous filmmaker. But before he was a filmmaker, he, he wrote this very seminal kind of book on um, how certain kinds of film technique or a particular kind of film technique, which we would now probably just call slow cinema. He was arguing that slow cinema is um, sort of more inherently spiritual. Now, most theologians that I'm aware of in this kind of area of theology and film haven't really run with that idea. There's been a tendency to say, hey, revelation can happen through film, but that's as far as people will go. But like I said, certain kinds of films seem to do it more than others. So what is it about these films and how is it that they're constructed? And what I zero in on my particular um, book is particularly on images. How do images unlock this? So I think that there are certain things. So traditionally, Some um, film critics and scholars have said that editing is the sort of antithesis of the spiritual in film or the sacred. Um, And that if you just let the camera run, um, that it, it sort of allows the viewer to explore the images themselves. They're not being told, in a sense, by the filmmaker what to look at by the sort of editing um, but instead, they're able to, the camera roams around and, and the viewer can look around the scene. And there's something about that kind of open ended nature of, of a, a kind of a long take, for example, that invites a more sort of meditative approach and therefore perhaps is more spiritual. And I think there's evidence for that. But one of the arguments I make in, in just one of the chapters is that I think um, montage, which is, you know, a particularly kind of intensified use of editing 
where you certainly are being told what to look at and it's been shoved in your face and then juxtaposed with a rapid fire succession of other images can also elicit a kind of a, a spiritual response, if you like. And I think partly how this works is that montage is great at um, eliciting a sense of the universal. And so there are certain kinds of films where I'm thinking of um, documentaries here by um, perhaps the most famous is, is Koyanis Katsi. Um, and where it's really just an hour and a half or so of montage of imagery from around the world. There's no real narrative. And yet what it depicts is a sense of humanity and connectedness, even with um, nature. So it gives it, I think in some sense, if somebody encounter, uh, has a sense of a divine encounter through a film like that, it's coming through the editing um, now, I don't think editing is the only one. I, I explore lighting and how lighting can work in that way. And, and as well as that um, composition and deep space composition. But yeah, so I, I guess I'm kind of driving at the possibility that certain kinds of techniques, film style, might be sort of inherently more spiritual. Um, but I, I hold back from being too prescriptive because um, there's so many other factors that go into making a film what it is. When you mention lighting, I think of all those old film noir from the 40s and 50s, made in black and white, most of them, where the lighting is so evocative and and so effective in creating the good versus evil and the moral conflict in those pictures. Absolutely, yeah. And and when I talk about lighting, I talk about um, a couple of films, uh, a, a sort of a spiritual classic, if you like, or a classic of religious cinema, uh, Oad, um, or sometimes called Audet, but uh, um, it's a Danish film, and my Danish friend tells me it's pronounced Oad. And another one, um, Silent Light, which is a kind of a remake. A, a, sort of a a remake. remake. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Aud Audit but, you know, was, other... Audit was made about, sorry, Audit was made about 1955. Am I right from memory? That's right. Yeah. 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 And, and Silent yeah. Light was 2009, I've written down here. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so there's a big gap between the two. But yeah, there is that kind of connection where the, um, the director of Silent Light was um, consciously basing it or inspired by Oad. The other filmmaker that I think of that um, comes to mind when it comes to light and use of light is Terence Malick. I've already mentioned The Tree of Life as one of those touchstone movies for people who are talking about revelatory experience through film. Um, but even other movies that he's done, I think of... Um, uh, days of heaven for example the use of light there is spectacular and i think particularly evocative of the divine mm. in what sense are these experiences part of general revelation do you think yeah so i draw again i draw on the work of rob johnston here so rob has spent made a career out of exploring how we might encounter god through the arts particularly through film and, and he's also written about literature and out of that, he has uh, reflected a lot on Revelation and, and written a book called God's Wider Presence. And in that book, he talks about basically that maybe we need to adjust our definition of general revelation. And general revelation is this idea that there are certain kinds of revelation that take place without specific reference to Jesus Christ. So it could be, um, you know, Traditionally, it's through maybe looking up at the, the night sky, for example, or it might be through um, our own uh, conscience, that kind of a thing. Uh, he wants to say, though, that uh, 
those kinds of experiences we're talking about where somebody is in the cinema and says, you know, um, in a gloss on Jacob, surely the Lord was in this movie theater and I wasn't aware of it, that we haven't had a really good sort of theological category to put this in. It doesn't quite fit in the traditional category of general revelation. And yet I don't think it neatly fits in sort of special revelation either. And so he wants to adjust the definition of general revelation so that it's, it's, broad enough to encompass that kind of thing so that we can understand it as a form of general revelation. Another movie that you feature in the book, and I was fascinated by this, you break it down, is Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Now, it's a very strange film. How yeah. has it, how has, I can't understand it. How has it been interpreted theologically, though, over the years? Yeah, it, I wanted to choose this film partly because it is... It's somewhat edgy um, when it comes to this area of theology and film. Um, because I'm talking about film style, it makes sense to choose films that don't necessarily take religious sub um, religion as their subject matter. And so, you know, for many people, 2001 A Space Odyssey is uh, a very sort of almost the antithesis of a religious film. And yet many people um, from its inception through to today um, report some kind of religious uh, experience through this film. Um, and so I was digging back through, um, you know, some or looking at some studies that were done digging back through, you know, correspondence um, to Stanley Kubrick when it was first released, looking at um, film reviews that people have written. And yeah, there is a divergent kind of, there are divergent responses. For some people, it's a very naturalistic kind of film. For some people, it's atheistic. And yet, for many people, it's sort of somehow spiritual. And so I wanted to explore that a little bit. Now, when it comes to um, theological, the sort of history of theological interpretation of that film, um, that probably the main thing that has been explored is the, the motif of the monolith that sort of black slab that appears mysteriously. And so I use that as a, a one, a, one entry point into exploring the, the notion that Rudolf Otto uh, brought or, or defined um, as God is, um, and my Latin is terrible, so I probably pronounced this wrong, but mysterium tremendum et fascinans, the idea that an encounter with the holy or with the divine is um, mysterious and equal parts scary and attractive and you know with the monolith in 2001 um, you see the hominids at the beginning and then later on that sort of contemporary humans um, approaching the monolith as if it were both um, scary and attractive they reach out but they're sort of um, skittish around it and so but I think Kubrick what Kubrick does quite apart from the monolith is conveys um, the transcendent in a way that has that kind of both kind of uh, dread associated with it, as well as something deeply attractive. And this is a kind of a complex response that the film evokes, which is similar to awe. It's almost like an intensified experience of awe because awe is an emotion that combines both um, fear and allure. Um, and if you're, if you're just outright terrified of something, you don't feel awe. But if you get the sense that you're okay, you're in a safe place, but it is nevertheless a powerful, vast thing, then you might feel awe. And I think awe is a kind of emotion that 2001 elicits. And awe 
I mean, psychological research shows that awe uh, makes people more inclined to uh, the possibility of the reality of God. So that's how a film like 2001, which on the surface might seem to be sort of anti-God, and certainly some Christians have read it that way, in fact, might actually elicit or invite a kind of emotional response that opens people up to the reality of the divine. What did Kubrick himself uh, say or write about God in 2001? Because I seem to remember he, yeah. he was very positive about it, wasn't he? That's the impression I get. Now, one of my supervisors on my doctoral research was a film scholar, uh, Hilary Radner, and she was fantastic. And she was skeptical of this, this read of Kubrick. She felt like, no, Kubrick was certainly not being sympathetic to the notion of God here. But when I look at the interviews that he gave on the film around the time of its release, he seemed fairly positive about the notion of God. However, the notion of God that he had was uh, certainly not orthodox by the, but in terms of Christian orthodoxy. I mean, he associated it a lot with alien life and highly evolved forms of alien life that would be so evolved that to us they would um, seem divine. But the idea that um, Kubrick was trying to elicit something or, or say something or hint at something of the divine, um, if we're going to take what he said at, at face value, then I think it's there. But I'm just not sure that all film, film scholars would agree with me on that. But if they don't, then I'd encourage them to go and have a look at what he himself said. I would have thought that the fact that these films create this feeling, these feelings or these experiences in, in vast numbers of people who watch them suggests that the directors put something in there and it's deliberate <laughs> and the lighting yeah, people and, and the script yeah, writers. And, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And um, Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote the, the novelization of the film, um, he, he, and I have to admit, I've never read the novel. My understanding is that Clarke's film, uh, sorry, Clarke's book is um, more explicitly, I don't know, naturalistic perhaps than, than is uh, the film. And so there seems to be something deliberate that Kubrick is doing with the film uh, where he wants to hint at the possibility of, of more, if you like. Now, the kind of more that he expresses doesn't fit in the sort of orthodox Christian response, uh, sorry, orthodox box, and yet at the same time might kind of ironically invite an, a response from the viewer that opens them up to the possibility of God. Yeah, final question, and it ties in with what we've just been talking about. How are the moments you describe in some films very much like C.S. Lewis's moments of joy? He describes tra experience of something transcendent that he had before he became a Christian. Very much like that. Mm. And I actually use Lewis as an example. And um, even when I'm just chatting to people who want to know what I've written about, I sometimes um, draw on Lewis's concepts. Even Lewis is writing himself. You know, um, a couple of years ago, I have young boys. And a couple of years ago, I uh, read through the Chronicles of Narnia with them and was just really struck with how uh, woven in to Lewis's descriptions, particularly of Aslan, this, these complex emotions where there is both fear and attraction. And that is um, very much a part of Lewis's own conversion story where these kinds of experiences that he had going back to when he was a child um, and often, often facilitated through literature, but sometimes through other things like nature and so on, these experiences that he called capital J joy, 
Other other times he used the German word sensor. Other times he came up with his own language like um, northernness. Um, but these were all ways of describing precisely this kind of complex experience. And interestingly, Lewis um, was deeply influenced by Rudolf Otto. Ah, okay. Mm. I hadn't made that connection. Mm. Well, there we are. Thank you, Richard. Richard, yes, yeah. Richard Vance Goodwin. There we are. So the new book, you'll never read film or you'll never watch a movie the same way again, is how I feel, having read Richard's book, because it's so thought-provoking and challenging. And it's it's something that I think it will be really good for, if you're listening to this podcast, get hold of it. It's great. IVP America, Seeing is Believing, The Revelation of God Through Film. And uh, Richard Vance Goodwin has been speaking to me from New within New Zealand. It's rare for me to interview someone from within my own country. I don't know why that is, but there it is. So, and thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge, who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Richard, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.